Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we just love movies and we love talking about movies and we love critiquing movies. And we're going to try to control like our anger and our love for certain people at the same time. Um, I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. How are you doing today before we get going on the films that I'm really excited to talk about? Like, I'm vibrating. I'm that excited. <laughs> I am doing great because I am also very excited for this episode. This is one that I've kind of wanted to do for a long time. And I didn't know if you would want to do it. So that's why I hadn't really <laughs> ever suggested it. <laughs> so I'm so excited. I am surprised that you'd be like, Lauren doesn't want to do this. Like, yeah, definitely. Well, <laughs> I uh, I think it's because I I mean I don't I I I didn't know if you had seen most of his movies mm-hmm. before the last year or two. So that's I figured it just was kind of eh, I don't know. And and I remember talking about him around the time Thor Ragnarok came out, and you you enjoyed that movie, but you didn't really have much of an opinion of him, and that. I think just kind of stuck with me. So I was just like, eh, maybe eventually we'll get to it when he has a few more movies under his belt. And now here we are. I, I mean, yeah, I think, I think that's probably true. That's like, I, I didn't for, for a very long time. I did not have a particularly strong opinion um, about, about his work. So what watching- changed Lauren? <laughs> um, watching more of his films, to be totally honest, <laughs> like it's actually paying attention with them. Also, I, there's definitely there are other things going on there as well, but uh, <laughs> but that's not important. Uh, <laughs> I think that's the other thing too is like I used to talk about how much I loved him, and you were like, I don't really get it. I appreciate him, but I don't really get it. And something in the last few months has shifted. <laughs> mm. And now you get it, don't you? You I get, get it. it. I get it. It's true. <laughs> uh, so why don't we start <laughs> people what the fuck we're talking about? So today. Uh, we're going to discuss some of the films of uh, Taika Waititi, who, I mean, I think most people know who he is, given especially because of Thor Ragnarok. Um, but also, of course, he directed Boy, uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, most recently released uh, Next Goal Wins, Jojo Rabbit, which we did discuss at length, um, and and I love, and you love, and uh, and so he's a he's a really fascinating filmmaker, I think, in a lot of ways, and it's. He's very much an auteur, which is not a word that we throw around a great deal because it's often misused. But he is actually an auteur, whether you want to admit that or not, um, because he tends to write and direct and very often appear in uh, his own his own films. And I think that's important. There's also this through line running through a lot of his uh, running through a lot of his oof that that very much I think contributes to the concept of him as auteur. And if you like that, 
you're going to like most of his movies. If you don't like that, if you do not like that through line um, and kind of the development of themes and things like that, then you're not going to enjoy any of them. And so he's, he's become unfortunately a very contentious filmmaker, some of which, most of which I do not understand completely because while I get not, being madly in love with his work, I do not understand hating it. Um, And that's where it begins to, you know, and we could talk about some of the weirder parasocial attitudes towards him uh, maybe a little bit later on, but I I find it really hard to, to like figure out why anyone would actually just look at his films and go like, I hate this man. Like I hate his, his, I hate these films. I hate this work. It's very strange to me. I find it very strange that anybody could see him in interviews on, you know, shows, anything where he's just being him or on Instagram, you know, anywhere where he's just being himself and hate him because he is, he is one of those people that is just, he's so full of light and positivity. He loves everything. He finds humor in everything. And he's just like impossible to be in a bad mood around. You know, he's just one of those people. Mm-hmm. And so when I when I see people say, oh, his movies are fine, but I just don't like him. I don't I don't understand that at all. Like, what is there to hate about him? He's hot. He's <laughs> delightful. <laughs> like he's just he's just mm-hmm. such a happy person. I, yeah, I, I think that some of it, like just in terms of, you know, if you're talking about his public persona, right, he he talks a lot and a lot of people don't like that. He makes yeah. a lot of jokes and a lot of people don't like that. And I think that there is actually one of the things I was considering in rewatching some of these films was this whole idea about Kiwi humor and the sort of the dryness, but also this this edge of just both happiness but also sarcasm and i think that that's one of the things that comes through so there's there's a little bit of a question i think sometimes is when is he being serious and when isn't he when is he actually Mm -hmm. being like yes i am the greatest filmmaker in the planet and when is he actually being like i know that i'm not you know um and and i think that that's where people begin to to get annoyed maybe or confused or something like that i i think that you know it's it's always a bad idea to go around projecting like things onto celebrities because ultimately we do not know them um we're not friends with them but i do think that there's a good bit of the kind of annoyance with him the annoyance not the hate but the annoyance with him as is kind of missing the joke a little bit um is is not being able to interpret when he is actually being just silly and when he's actually you know being serious and he's like oh yeah he actually does have that big of an ego etc again that's a really oh sorry sorry go on i was gonna say that's a really good point because like i remember just i mean this was just last year when the the first trailer finally came out for next goal wins a film that was supposed to originally come out in like 2020 i think um before everything got shut down but anyway they finally released the first trailer for that and in the trailer um they actually have like there's a there's a part where it says from from um oh from director taiko itt loser of the academy award for best picture for jojo rabbit and people got so up in arms about that like does he forget that he won an oscar for that movie for screenwriting and it's like 
wow, way to miss the joke. The movie that is being advertised here is about losers. So the focus is on what he lost, not what he won. Like, that's the whole joke. And also, (laughs) it's also at the same time pointing out that he directed a movie that was nominated for Best Picture. (laughs) Like... Yeah, I I, I, think, hard. I think that that's some of it, honestly. I, I think I think that there's this pushback against him because people are missing the joke a lot of the yeah. time. And people are not certain where the joke starts and ends, which is part of the point, like part of his his whole thing. And, and this includes some of what is going on in a lot of his films is that there is this very uh, fluid barrier between what is funny, what is just like this is a joke, this is a this is a funny moment and what is serious. And it, it can be a little discombobulating, if, especially if you're used to only watching, you know, very mainstream films, um, films that are being made by white directors where everything is kind of straightforward. It's just like, all right, this is this is the perspective that we're taking. And there's a little bit more fluidity to most of his work in. And, and a lot of it is under the guise of comedy. Right. It's like, oh, this is a fun, this is a funny, cute movie about, you know, a sports team. It's like an inspirational sports movie. And then you begin to get into it. It's just like, oh, this is doing something different than than, you know, cool runnings or something like that. Um, and so that that barrier and that barrier very much extends to uh, his his public persona and the things that he says in interviews. So it's, it's kind of like people are taking overly seriously some of the things that he says and i think they're also missing the serious stuff that he actually says Mm -hmm. um and so we get this weird kind of thing and i i do think you know again not to go too far into this whole thing about him as a person but i do think that there is a lot of racism running around as well um and that there's an unwillingness you know even if we are to take everything that he says at face value and say you know yes this guy thinks that he is literally the greatest director ever um, which I think is is ridiculous. I do not think I, that he, he does not that. believe that. <laughs> no, um, no, and I think that you can tell that when he is being serious and talking about other filmmakers and things like that. Mm-hmm. But even if he did, how many fucking white dudes explicitly talk about themselves as though they are the greatest artist ever? Yeah. Um, people like Ari Aster and Christopher Nolan and Denis Villeneuve, etc. They do act like they are superior and how and and they do not get the amount of shit that uh that he does and that's that's where like a lot of the reactions to his stuff feel there's an undercurrent of racism and there's an undercurrent i think also of anti-semitism there's all kinds of other things going on under there and it's being kind of covered over with the guise of well i just don't like the guy whenever you start saying i just don't like someone and you're talking about someone who's a person of color or a woman or a queer person, et cetera, then that's where I begin to get very suspicious. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like I, I, I just, I, when I think about him as a director and how he works, I think back to when Jojo Rabbit came out, I was still very much working for award circuit. Clayton hadn't sold out to the men at variety yet. Just kidding. Love you, Clayton. Good, good job um but anyway no i uh we were we were doing all kinds of you know we had really built up to where we were really involved in the awards race and so when jojo rabbit was nominated was well when during that oscar season um i had the opportunity to i never interviewed him for the movie i did end up getting to meet him later but i never interviewed him but i interviewed 
you know, Michael Giacchino, the composer and um, like just so many people, the, the costume designer and the production designer, cinematographer, like all these people that had worked on the film and all of them had the most positive things to say about working with him and not just like, oh, he's really funny and nice. It was like he I think one of the things that kind of gets lost in his humor when he's on Instagram, it's very popular for him to post pictures of him being asleep on set. And so it looks like that's all he does all day when they're filming a movie is just sleep through the whole production. But that could not be further from the truth. And he's very involved in all the decisions, but in a way where it's it's clearly a collaboration. He loves to he loves to boost other people up and and support their work, support their creativity. And he what he's very good at is bringing a lot of very smart, very talented people together to work together and let everybody have the opportunity to shine. And I think that's one of those things that a lot of people don't know about him because of the fact that he does kind of have this this auteur um, style. And um, and so it, his his skills as a director and and how seriously he actually does take the work of making films gets lost in in all of that yeah and i i I think that that all makes sense and it all makes sense also to the to what we see in his his films which are very collaborative and Mm -hmm. are very often not about a single they very often don't centralize a single character it's about multiple characters it's about a, a team basically yeah um and and I think that you can see that. And and also, you know, just to go back to, to some of his early career, you know, this this was someone who started in comedy, um, directed huge sections of directed and wrote huge sections of Flight of the Concords, um, you know, so was always in a team, basically. And the and part of the point of a lot of his early work, and you see that also again in, in what we do in the shadows. Um, is we're going to get everybody together and we're going to play basically. Mm -hmm. And we're going to, and these are all very talented people and people who know what they're doing. They know how to improvise. They know what their jobs are. Um, And you have to trust them enough to let them kind of go and work and be funny and do whatever they need to do. Um, And I think that that, that runs through in different ways, but that runs through all of the films that he has made. It also seems to run through a lot of the, Uh, producing work that he has done and i mean most famously he's a major producer and creator behind reservation dogs and according to you know the way that that production kind of fell out he took a back seat realizing that other people need to be telling their own stories this is not my story he has an experience as an indigenous man but he's not um uh, he's not from Oklahoma. This is not his story. And so he stepped back and said, okay, now you, now someone else needs to be telling this. And so he gave more space to, uh, to Sterling Harjo to kind of bring all of that out and to actually tell the story that needed to be told. And that's really important from a producing perspective. It is also important from a directing perspective to be willing to let other people to trust other people and to let other people tell their stories. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's, I mean, that's something that we've talked about here a lot is certain directors choosing to, to make movies that maybe they shouldn't be the one directing, but they should be using their name to elevate other voices. I'm not going to call out anybody specific here, but we have talked about this a number of times. And Taika is one of the people who actually does that. 
he uh he used his name and his um his success to help get reservation dogs for example to the air uh to tv but then once that was established then he was able to step back and let other people actually run that and 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 run with it and he it wasn't about you know like if it wasn't ego for him it was this is an important story that needs to be made like needs to be shared and uh yeah it's it's i i really wish that uh other other people would would follow that example well and to to go into to start talking about the films that we're actually going to talk about today the the whole one of the through lines that runs through it is is that all of these films are based around um indigenous people yeah and uh and of course this is his personal experience as well as a, a Maori man. Um, and, but these are all also very, so these are very much narratives about not, not just Maori people, but, um, but the, the indigenous experience kind of in a broad sense and is, and they're also very, very personal. So the three films that we're going to talk about uh, are boy from 2010, um, which I believe is his second feature film. Yes. Uh, Hunt for the Wilder People from 2016. And then finally, Next Goal Wins from 2023. And all of these are available for, on streaming. Boy is on Canopy and Hoopla. Um, Hunt for the Wilder People is on Netflix, Tubi, and a couple of other places. And Next Goal Wins is now on Hulu. So all of these can be can be watched, as well as a number of his other films. Uh, you know, we're not going to talk about Thor, etc., although it would be kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We but, love Thor, but yeah. we love Thor. But yeah, yeah I, I think that I think that these are very good examples of like the kind of work that he does. Yeah. So let's talk about Boy. Let's uh, do. What are your thoughts on Boy, Karen? Because I saw this fairly recently for the first time, and it just fucking floored me. <laughs> oh man! So well, I, I first I want to just say that um, the first film of Taika's that I saw was. Um, what we do in the shadows in 2014 it was uh, the year that it had it had been released at Sundance I didn't see it at Sundance though it was at a different festival I was at later that year and I love that movie so much that I was like okay I need to know more about these folks and that's actually what led me to Flight of the Concords I hadn't seen that before eventually it led me to Boy and I just was instantly just so in love with this movie because there are certain things about it. My dad is not a criminal. He's never been arrested that I know of. Um, he's a very upstanding citizen. But um, but the the relationship between Boy and his father was something that I I could find some um, uh, camaraderie with. I guess it was it, there were some things about it that that kind of spoke to me and my experiences of just having this this um. How do I want to say it in case my dad is listening? Um, there's there's some space and some distance there because of life circumstances that have happened and choices that have been made. Uh, again, very different circumstances. But that was what really initially drew me into this movie was like, wow, I understand what this is like when you really want your dad around and he's just not. And then he kind of shows up and disappears again. And, you know, there's just kind of this back and forth. And um. But that's where the similarities where where my level of connection with the movie end because this is very much a specific story and about this 11 year old boy living this is 1984 in new zealand and um it's just 
it's kind of the wild west of of just what it was like to be a kid in the 80s so there was also a universality to that too i was like oh wow even in new zealand they just let kids run wild unsupervised (laughs) good to know um but uh but yeah it's it's funny it's sweet it really gets into um like when we talk about coming of age stories this is very much when you can see the moment where boy grows up where he is no longer a boy he is a man and there's a very very specific moment that happens that we'll talk about in a second but um but this is such it's a funny movie but it's also one that you can tell is deeply personal to Waititi um who also had a fraught relationship with his own father um and and I, I I think that it really it captures the innocence of youth, but that that cusp of growing up, but also just the confusion of that time in such a wonderful way. And it's ultimately a very again, this is something we're going to talk about a lot the rest of this episode, but it's a very loving, kind and sensitive um, way of telling a story like this. Yeah, it, it's. I, I think, you know, I, I, I said that it floored me, but it, it really is one of those. You're just like, oh, this is funny. This is funny. Oh, this this isn't funny. Like, and it's that there, that tension between that experience of like there there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of like childhood games and things like that. And then there's so much reality underlying that and pain underlying that. And it's a very difficult thing to pull off to not make that depressing but yeah. also not to dis to um you know she's like oh this is just fun and inspirational right there there's a balance that has to be struck and then he strikes incredibly well in this film um and and there's also like you know we we kind of watch Alamein, who is played by, by Taika Waititi. So this is a this is a very thinly veiled autobiographical story <laughs> in which he casts himself as his own father. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder and, what his therapist thought about this. I mean, it's just one of those, you're just like, I, I feel like we're getting too close to something here. There are a couple of points. And if, if you want to get really fucking weird about it, there is a, a audio commentary in which he continues to perform as the father, as Alamein and comments on the action as it happens. And there's a particular sequence where, um, he literally goes like, oh, this is getting too dark. Oh, I thought this was supposed to be a comedy. I thought it was, oh, I don't want to watch this. And he starts singing <laughs> over this scene that is this intense emotional scene between this father and son. And he starts like reciting things and say, just like, oh, we're going to look away from this. Like, <laughs> uh, and, and then at the same time, and then at, at, at a certain point, he's just like, of course, we also have to talk about the 200 years of generational trauma. And I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> yeah, this is how my <laughs> father treated me and that's how his father treated him and all of this. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's a really, really interesting thing to kind of listen to and difficult as well. But I think- Side note on that, <laughs> I just have to say, anybody who has not had the pleasure, any one of his movies, just listen to the director's commentary and thank us later because <laughs> they are all so wild and so weird. <laughs> you have to have already, don't make this, the, don't do that the first time you watch a movie. But uh, yeah, like his director's commentary on Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> There's like so many funny things. Like 
and shows, you know, Thor being all hot and buff. And he's just like, yeah, funny thing. Um, Chris Hemsworth never actually came to set. This was all motion capture. I was the stand in for his body. <laughs> Stuff like that. Anyway. Wow. Sorry. Yeah, it's really um, funny. But I but I think that that's one of the things, you know, it's it's funny, but it's one of the things that um, the film does really well is striking that balance. Yeah. And and it, it creates this emotional resonance because you see like the, the childhood of it, right? The fact that they, these are games, these are kids. These are also kids who are left alone, <laughs> like for large sections without adult supervision, without anyone to kind of guide them. And there are other adults who sort of try to intervene and try to help, but they're not, you know, a huge part of these kids' lives. These kids are like kind of moreless and they're they're running around and they're um, and they, they, you know, the boy in particular wants his father. He wants this connection to his dad. He wants, you know, he has all of these images about who his father is. And it gets clearer and clearer that that's not at all who his father is. Um, and it's him having to, you know, kind of deal with that and grow up about it um, yeah. in, a, in a space where he shouldn't have to. Like, that's one of the things that runs through a lot of Wachiti's films is exactly that children should not have to experience this. Right. Um, we see it in Jojo Rabbit as well, but, uh, and, and in Hunt for the Wilder People, children should not be put in this position. This is not what is good for them, but they, you know, you have to find a way to survive basically. Um, and they do it through games. They do it through humor and imagination and all of that. And it's very moving, but it's also, the undercurrent is very much like this should not be happening. Right. Um, yeah. And, but managing that in a film and, telling the story in a way that is very kind and forgiving as well. Cause there's a lot of forgiveness of Alamein as well. Forgiveness without, um, without dismissal, without saying like, you know, everything is fine. Actually. It's like, no, everything's not fine. Yeah. I but think that's stand him. Yeah. I think that's the most important thing about this movie. I mean, there's lots of coming of age stories, lots of, of stories about kids that are basically left, you know, left to raise themselves um but i think what and and also a lot of movies where kids have really crappy dads and i mean in this case alamein has just come out of jail you know he's been locked up for several years and um and so there's so many ways that a story like that could have just fallen into cliche and could have just been very like okay yeah dad sucks you know we're just gonna hope that things are better this time until he inevitably just takes off his leaves us again right but that's not what this movie does and it has this this compassion for him without like you say without dismissing or excusing anything that he has done it's it takes this very compassionate look and this is where i really think um part of this story is born out of of taika doing a lot of therapy with his own relationship with his dad and grandfather and whatnot um but it really does it's like yeah, Alamein has made some terrible choices and but you also see that he understands that he's suffering the consequences of those decisions too and that his life has not at all gone the way that he hoped it would. He's always kind of still looking for that way out and that next thing that can finally get him out of of away from the choices that he's made, but I think he always kind of knows that that's not going to happen for him either. He's he really is stuck. And instead of condemning him or making him overly um, like without giving him an easy way out, but with all without also making him 
just the worst possible version of a father you could get. You, you instead get this, this compassionate, loving portrayal of someone who is deeply flawed and is just trying to figure out how to, how to do something differently and better. Yeah. And, and how, how his son, his sons actually mm-hmm. are going to make their way out of that. And if they're going to, and that, that's why, so that, that comment that I just referenced about generational trauma and so much yeah. of this is so big and I'm not going to say, I'm not an expert at all on, on Maori history or, or anything like that. Um, but it's one of the elements that kind of runs through a lot of his work about it. This isn't just about one father and one son. This is about generations upon generations of fathers and sons and mothers um, and daughters and loss and, and things that are not the fault of individuals. Right. But that are also now the responsibility of individuals because Alamein doesn't take responsibility for his kids. Right. Um, and and is it taking responsibility for itself in a lot of ways and it's both this like well it's not to be excused by the past but also the past is very much a part of it yeah yeah that's the reality and you see like when boy is at school and he's telling this you know fantastical story about where his father is like often you know other countries and doing cool spy work and whatever it is that that he's making up and another kid in the class is like, uh, that's not true. Your dad is in jail with my dad, <laughs> you know? And, and so it's, it's also taking away some of the, the shame that a kid might feel that their dad is locked up because that's just the reality for a lot of the kids in this town is that their dad, there's nowhere to go. There's no opportunities here. And so this is, this is just how it is. A lot of the fathers are are either away working trying to earn money or they're locked up in jail and um and like even with boy and his brother rocky whose mother died when rocky was born um it's they're being they're living with grandma essentially being raised by grandma but really they're not being raised by anybody um but she's not she doesn't just have them she has other grandkids too whose parents are who knows where you know that they're all kind of left alone with grandma and that's just how mm-hmm. it is in this town and how it is in a lot of towns well and and you get these these moments of boy actually taking care of the other kids right taking yeah. care of his brother making sure they have breakfast he's the oldest know? so it, yeah. the responsibility falls to him yeah mm-hmm. ma- making sure that they have breakfast making sure they have they go to school you know all of those things and then throughout the film then this shift happening where oh i'm gonna be like my dad i'm gonna be like i'm gonna be cool and all this stuff and what one of the things i really like is the fact that that uh boy very much thinks his father is cool for a, for a little while at least mm-hmm. and the viewer sees how very not cool he is yeah. Like the the whole thing about like, you know, him getting out of there, like trying to get into the car through the window um, <laughs> and just like he can't do it because it's a small car. And like and and it's just this this moment of like he's a he is a loser. <laughs> like he's he's a dork. Like he's right. not he's not cool. But of course, to his son, he's like, oh, he's this really cool, amazing guy. Um, but the film is very clear about like we are not going to completely see this just through his eyes we're going to see like who this man actually is yeah um, but even when it does that when it does those things and you definitely see that that uh Alamein is 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 a loser is you know a goof or whatever even then i don't 
I don't feel, and maybe other people watch differently, but for me, I don't feel like we're intended to laugh at him. We're intended to just kind no. of feel sorry for him. And there's a difference there. Yeah, there, there is, there's a sympathy that runs throughout. Again, I think it's that element of forgiveness of, of like, you know, this, this is a guy who's fucked up and he's mm-hmm. fucked up because of things, choices that he's made, but also because of things that have happened. Um, his, you know, the mother of his children died when one of them was born. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and probably and that was his one chance of, of turning things around and actually making something of his life because you get, you get little glimpses, you get, you see picture of the two of them together. You get like a little bit of a, a whiff of a memory, you know, and it's like, if she had lived, there's a possibility that she would have been the, the anchor that he needed to keep him from going down bad mm-hmm. paths always looking for something else and trying to basically self-medicate from the pain of losing her yeah and and you see that i think throughout and you see particularly as nearing the end of the film when um when rocky like goes and apologizes for killing his mother mm-hmm. and and you have this moment between them and and so much of the film is about alamine and boy but when we actually get rocky mixed in there who thinks that he has powers to hurt people yeah right and because he killed his mom he was so strong he had these powers he couldn't control them and he killed his mother um and there's this moment of like you know the alamein and him connecting and i think and and definitely i think one of the things that we see is alamein realizing my child thinks he murdered his own mother Mm -hmm. um and that, that what happened is his fault and it's really moving. And that, I mean, that entire sequence is very uh, difficult to watch, but also very, very well done um, because it is where kind of everything breaks and there's a little bit more honesty happening between the father and his sons. Well, that's uh, another area where we see, you know, a cliched version of that would have a father resenting his child for what happened when that child was born. We've seen that over and over again in movies. And instead, he he doesn't go there. This is this is something much deeper and much more meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. And I I really like the fact that the film does end on the the haka to Michael Jackson's thriller. Yes, and, or the thriller. So it's it's actually um, I can't remember the name of the song. It's a it's a Maori pop song. Um, but just the combination of those images and there is like this this kind of burst of joy and fun and humor and like all kinds of things that happens at the end of a film that's that's in a lot of ways very difficult to watch in places Um, but it does it does hammer home that element of like you know we can survive and we can have a lot of fun doing it maybe (laughs) yeah we don't have to be bogged down in grief and pain we can still find find things to be hopeful and, and cheerful about yeah um so so i i've been it's it's a it's a fantastic film uh and i think it provides a very good through line to hunt for the wilder people yes uh which is about what six years later so it's 2016 and is a similar story in a lot of ways in terms of like a father and son sort of father and son dynamic uncle and uncle and nephew (laughs) uncle and child dynamic uh don't call me uncle sorry Well, and that kind of that catalyst of of the loss of the mother figure um, to yeah. that kind of, you know, that is holding the two, the the three of them together. And I do like the fact that in this one, we get a lot more of Bella 
and who she is. Uh, so, so the story basically follows uh, a, a boy, Ricky Baker, um, who has been moving through the foster care system, has been moved around to multiple foster homes and finally gets sent um, to Bella and her husband, Hector. Uh, Hector's played by Sam Neill and Bella's played by Rima Tiwiata. Uh, and Ricky like begins to actually, who's had a lot of difficulties, actually begins to connect with Bella and to have fun, et cetera. And then Bella dies. And it becomes clear that um, Ricky is going to be sent back into foster care because there has to be a woman around. Um, in, in order, so Hector cannot continue to take care of him. So Ricky decides, I'm not doing this shit. I'm leaving. He runs away into the bush and is followed by Hector, who is trying to bring him back. And then things happen from there. Um, this this one is, first of all, deeply, deeply funny. Like, it's funnier in a lot of ways than Boy. Oh, very much so, yeah. <laughs> uh, much more, much heavier on the comedy, but but has similar elements and like that that through line of trauma and particularly father-son relationships um and it's it's just such a it's such a funny film and so poignant and so like and and a little bit bigger in a lot of ways because there's like car chases and the cops are after them and there's all kinds of weird people that they meet on their journey through the wilderness (laughs) uh and and but it's about particularly about the two of them connecting and learning from each other and also seeing into their past and their experiences and again finding that that way to sort of muddle through and to survive in a way that is also joyful um and so like re re-watching and i was i it's, it's been a while since i've seen this film i was sending you messages while i was watching it where i was just like why does no one why do people not like this man to work i'm gonna burst into tears <laughs> like all of this stuff um, cause it is, it's so funny and it's so sweet and kind and, and also just like, yeah, there, there's just this wonderful joyfulness while at the same time, really looking at the difficulties and the, the pain of the life that these people lead, because again, it's one of those through no fault of their own. None of these things are happening to them because they've done something wrong. This is simply what their lives are and yeah. they're trying to figure it out. <laughs> So yeah. what are your thoughts on this? Um, well, first of all, I love it. I, I'm just going to say, if it wasn't already clear, that there's not a Taiko ITT film I do not like. Um, I feel like that's probably important information. But um, this one, I think, is one of his best films that he has made. And for a lot of reasons, um, story-wise, but also just the there's... Um, you can see this confidence you can definitely see what he does with a slightly bigger budget <laughs> now six years later um so you see his growth as a filmmaker but also um but also yeah the story is 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 funnier it's it's um there's so many things about it that i really like one of the i think most important things for me at least when it comes to the story is that you have two people who don't think they need each other who just kind of end up sticking together for um you know for for pragmatic purposes ricky really can't survive in the woods on his own and heck doesn't want to get arrested so he can't go back to civilization and also he just doesn't want to have this kid's death on his his conscience you know if something goes wrong and so they just kind of stick together 
but uh, through their experiences, without realizing it, at least for Hag, they become very, uh, very close. And and for for Hag, played by just the wonderful curmudgeon Sam Neill, um, he he goes through an unexpected growth process too. And you throughout, you not only get to see his building relationship with Ricky, but you also get to see moments of how he is a deeply sensitive person who really does feel a lot of things. And, you know, when, when Bella first dies, he's, he's crying about it, but then it's just kind of like, all right, well, back to, back to life, back to work, whatever. But then he has another moment later where he breaks down and you see that he really does. He really, really loved her and he really misses her. And, um, and then there, he's also sensitive to other things, like when Ricky figures out that Heck can't read, for example, and and Heck is trying not to care about the fact that Ricky has an opinion about that and is laughing at him. But you can see that that's actually something that is is a cause for embarrassment and and sort of you know mm-hmm. he he just he does have emotions about that, and I think that's what you get throughout this movie is just people that. Um, that have have struggled through life have had a lot of you know have had a lot of experiences and getting to see people who normally again with the the kind of um breaking down the cliches a little bit which i think is really one of the hallmarks of of ytt's filmography um you you see where he takes that that curmudgeon character but gives him heart in a way that is mm-hmm. not necessarily just, oh, this kid just like broke down my my walls. You know, there's so much more to it than that. Yeah, there there's there's a depth to the characters and and particularly particularly Heck and uh, and Ricky. Yeah. And Bella. And Bella. And one one of the things I really like in, in like the introduction of Bella is that we were introduced her. She's wearing like a little cat sweater or something. Uh-huh. But she's very much like this cute, this cute, like, oh God, she's this cute woman who just has is completely out of her depth, is about to take on this, you know, whatever whatever he is, 14, 13, 14 year old. 13, boy, yeah. Who is like, and I love the description of his crimes. Like he's kicking <laughs> stuff and graffitiing. And it's just like you mean he's like a teenage boy that that unsupervised teenager yeah that's been in the foster care system his entire life i what a criminal like um (laughs) but but you meet bella and she's like oh is this she's kind of cute and she's out of her depth and then almost immediately we get like oh no no she is tough as nails she is fucking competent she is very smart like all of this stuff and we get so we get the depth to the to these characters um, mm-hmm. That they are very much not what you see on the surface to begin with, and it's an unexpected depth in in some ways because I think we are used to kind of being like, oh, this is another stereotypical story. Yeah. Um, and like they like say, un- with lesser filmmakers uh, under different circumstances, we would get like, oh, this is a feel good narrative about growing up, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, but that's not that's not what it actually becomes. And and you get that you get that with a lot of the secondary characters as well. You get those little glimpses into their pass into who they are as people and you get the sense of these people actually being people right real human beings mm-hmm. um one of the other things i i thought of as you were talking is how much of this is also about masculinity and maleness and how men are supposed to behave and how boys learn to be men etc and how again a lot of it is very much about being okay with being emotional and having feelings and acknowledging the fact that 
men do have feelings. Yeah. Uh, and that those feel not just feelings of anger, but also pain and and hurt. And they're taught to conceal them and to pretend or to cover them with humor, um, to cover them with toughness, et cetera. And then when they get into a position where you can actually be like, it's okay to feel those things, um you you actually get like this this wonderful growth and meaning behind it. And it's it's very, again, it's that very life-affirming element to a lot of, of Watiti's work. Like we don't have to be like this, basically. Yeah. Um yeah. it's it's really wonderful. I do have to I do have to give a quick shout out to the fact that he cast Reese Darby as a conspiracy <laughs> theorist living alone in the middle of the woods. He took his friend who's into like cryptids and hunting for Bigfoot. And it's like, we're going to, we're going to put you in a tin hat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love, I love Psycho Sam so much. (laughs) He's so funny. I love like when, when they realize the cops are there and he's freaking out like, oh no, we have to get away. Let's go down into my secret bunker. Oh wait, I haven't built it yet. (laughs) (laughs) We'll play dead. Oh, it's so great. Can we also talk funny. for a minute about Rachel House and Oscar Kiteley? Yes, as- <laughs> we can. <laughs> <laughs> They're wonderful. Like, I didn't realize because I, I I, I just didn't track when I was like, oh, Mar- Mary Reed. And then she's worked with him a lot. <laughs> like, yeah. She hasn't been in all of his movies, but she's definitely no. been in all three of the ones that we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, she so she plays Paula, who is the the family, the children and family services worker who's trying to bring Ricky back. And um, she's sort of the social worker that's in charge of him. And and he's been the bane of her existence for a while. And um, so she she gets to be this sort of um, the sort of stereotypical villain. Um, And there's. But but she, Rachel, specifically Rachel House, brings so much um uh humor to that part that it it doesn't just feel like like, okay, here we go. Here's the bad guy that's just like wants to bring this kid down. Like she she um she reveals sort of the ridiculousness of what this you know what what is happening here. Because this situation is silly. Ricky has someone who's willing to to keep, heck doesn't necessarily want to keep the kid around but by the time mm-hmm. they've been in the woods for months he's very willing to keep ricky and but the system just won't allow that and paula is sort of the the um representation of this system that just really doesn't actually work to help mm-hmm. these kids in the foster system and then you have oscar kitely as the the cop that's accompanying her who has to keep reminding her that she's actually not a cop <laughs> <laughs> and he has a very different way of doing things and he's he's so much more laid back and he's like yeah we need to get this kid but also like this is a good time i'm having fun <laughs> just i I, there, I love there's a whole exchange where she's like i'm the terminator <laughs> and it's like no i'm the terminator it's like, no, you're you're sarah Con- you're sarah connor before she got buff where she did all those pull-ups yes it's like they're having this argument across like this this big divide about which one of them is the terminator and which one of them is sarah connor (laughs) it's just very funny it Um, is yeah yeah like the the whole like no 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 child left behind like (laughs) he'll know what that means (laughs) 
It is. It's very funny. And and again, well, you know, someone who is just very, I mean, it, it, at, that, at that point, she is just very good at the comedy. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I love her. So Rachel House and, and Oscar Kiley are also in Next Goal Wins. They sure are. <laughs> and they are wonderful. Um, and I, I like, you know, talking about stereotypes and like you know this whole like inspirational movie stuff just like i fucking loved this movie like i watched it for the first time last night um i i've actually i've already ordered the blu-ray because i wanted it in my collection it is just it's it's marvelous so and i am i am upset with how this film got panned because it did not deserve it at all uh so this this is about um a Dutch American football coach, Thomas Rongen, played by Michael Fassbender, uh, who has to take on the American Samoa national team. Um, so they are literally the worst team in soccer, like down at the bottom, have never scored a goal. Like not only have they not won a game, they have never scored a goal in international <laughs> soccer comp- competition. And and he and so he has to take them on. And that basically this is their last chance. This is their absolutely last chance. They're, the team might get shut down um, because By they, the way, this is a true story. Yeah, they're they're truly the worst team. Uh, and and so he basically either has to take them on or he's not going to have a job anymore. So he does take them on. And it turns into this this wonderful story about, you know, about losers and also about playing a game. And being okay with being losers, but also wanting to be winners at the same time. It's this is it strikes such a wonderful balance of like some of those inspirational sports movie tropes and then kind of puncturing them and saying, like, you know, maybe we're approaching this in the wrong way. You know, maybe we're looking at this in a way because the the goal that they actually have is to score a goal. They don't even want to win. Um, the the owners and the coaches and the players are all like, we want to score a goal. Mm-hmm. I love Tavita, um, who is the president of the yeah. the Football Federation of American Samoa, and that's Oscar Kiley, and he's the one who who's there to kind of work with Thomas and and kind of be his his local not mentor, but um, you know his local kind of boss contact person, and that's his whole thing. Just one goal. Just one goal. That's all I'm asking. Just one goal. And I just, I love Tavita so much. That like repetition of one goal. Uh-huh. One goal. Like, and, and that's one of the things I love throughout this film is that it uses all of these tropes, right? It's just like, oh, it's this scrappy little team that just needs to be brought together by, you know, the grumpy coach who's going to learn how to love again and all of that stuff. And it keeps on puncturing those and kind of not making fun of it but also not taking it super seriously and, and treating it as though like, you know, these tropes exist, but there's something that's actually underlying them. Um, and, and it's, it is, it's, it's fucking funny. I love uh, David Finney, who is just the most adorable man. And I would like to give him a hug. Uh, <laughs> and You're bad. You're so bad. It's <laughs> like so trying to give them this inspirational slash, you know, dressing down. It's just like, you guys are just really not good at this. And he's so <laughs> sweet about it too. <laughs> um, it's, it's wonderfully funny. And, uh, and, and again, it, it addresses all of those things. So, you know, th- again, this could have been 
such a simplistic inspirational sports movie and and again under any other director i think it would have been yeah but with Taika, it's not and and it actually like treats of all these things in a, in a serious way but then kind of is like you know maybe we're looking at this all in the wrong way maybe you know this isn't it isn't about winning because one of the wonderful things that i like that runs through the film is this whole thing just like well it is a game <laughs> like we are playing like it's just it's not a game it's it's life it's god you know all this like but it's not really like it's it's a game right and it's- and and it, there's the point where where he actually begins to accept that and be like yeah it's a game we should have fun <laughs> yeah well and especially for american samoa where these players i mean this isn't a country that has you know professional players that this is their job they go to training all the time and they work together all the time but these are all folks that have to live and soccer isn't paying their bills you know so they all have multiple jobs there's a you know when when thomas michael fassbender first arrives on on the island and he's greeted by this um a reporter and cameraman who are doing who's on the plane. And this is like a little show that they have where it's, you know, whatever visitors are coming to visit American Samoa, they, they do an interview with them. And Tavita's the, the cameraman. He's also the president of the football association. He's, you know, he, he does all kinds of jobs around the Island and he has a line where he tells Thomas, Oh yeah, everybody works multiple jobs here. It's a small Island. We have a small population, you know? And so for, for this team, soccer is what brings the football, whatever um, is what brings them together and gives them something, something to focus on, but it's not their whole life because it can't be, they don't have the luxury of that being their whole life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I, okay. So I think that we should definitely talk about um, Jaya. Yes. Who is played by uh, Kamana and is kind of kind of the the one of the focal points of the film and and is also the the uh the character that I caused a great deal of ruckus when the film came out and uh and I think that we should talk about it. So Jaya is a openly transgender um soccer player who is also probably one of the best players they have. Yeah, and, and also and- just in the real life story, Jaya is the first uh the first openly trans person ever to play in a world cup level like international game so and continues to be a soccer coach and um and a couple of other things and like and and she has also heaped praise on the film as well um and is very much has talked about how this is very close to her experience etc but so one of the criticisms that was sort of leveled at this moment it came out is that there is a lot of, of dialogue and conversation about Jaya as the character and about um, her experience as a, a transgender woman. Um, and then also there is a scene in which uh, Thomas dead names her. Yeah. And, and there's, there's an escalation that is happening because she's consistently late to practice. There's the sense that she's not taking it seriously. He thinks she's not taking it seriously. And he dead names her and he dead names her multiple times mm-hmm. um, until she grabs him and slams him down. And it basically challenges him, you know, say say it one more time, basically. Um, and so there's there's this whole secondary plot that is going on that is about being transgender. And I'm trying to remember the uh, the actual word that they use about this this third gender, essentially. Um, 
because it's also about uh, Samoan um, understanding of, of what being transgender is. And so there's an interesting combination that is going on. Um, fast forward a little bit, and there's been a lot of conflict within the team and Thomas has more or less quit. And she shows up at his door to apologize for, for slamming him. And he in turn apologizes for dead naming her. So one of the, the things that was brought up was like, oh, she shouldn't be the one to apologize. How dare they depict um, this, this transgender woman apologizing to, to a white man who dead named her, et cetera. So what, what is your take on this, Karen? Because I, I have an opinion, but I would like to know what yours is first. <laughs> um, yeah, I, yes. So, okay. First of all, I just wanted to say that the, I'm, I might say it incorrectly, but the, um, the gender for that Jaya identifies with is Fafafine. I think that sounds right. Yeah. It's, it's, so, it's something very similar to that. I might be pronouncing it incorrectly, but, uh, yeah, it's basically a, a third gender or a non-binary, um, person. So, um, so I think there's a couple of things happening here. I think that, um, some of the criticism that I've seen as far as as the way Jaya is portrayed and the way that 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 her uh, role is handled in the film, um, one one or one complaint that I saw a few times was, well, there's no evidence that Thomas Rongin was was transphobic, and so to portray him as that is is very unfair. And I I can understand where some people might feel that way, but I also think that in this case because of the fact that there was a lot of opinions about whether Jaya in real life should be able to play um, in, on a male soccer team. Uh, I think that Thomas in the film is basically acting sort of as a surrogate for yeah. a lot of larger public opinion. And so whether it's fair that that gets focused on him or not, uh, that's the reality is that this is, he's, he's becoming like the, the voice of people who had these these questions these complaints mm -hmm. about jaya specifically i think the relationship between the two of them i don't she's not apologizing to him for um for being upset that he treated her the way that he did uh he yeah. he what he did was in in dead naming her he was very disrespectful to her and so for jaya when she apologizes, she's apologizing for the violence and for the, uh, you know, un inability in that moment to control her own emotions, which whether you think that's something she needs to apologize for or not is a different conversation, but let's look at what she's actually apologizing for. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, violence isn't usually the answer in any situation. <laughs> and so even though I am never going to be upset at somebody for body slamming Michael Fassbender. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, I think that's really what she's apologizing for is for the, the violent outbursts and not for like, Hey, I was wrong in this situation. It was specifically that, that instance. Um, mm -hmm. But it also gives the two of them an opportunity to have a really meaningful conversation. And, and, and it, so, and that's the other thing too. My other takeaway from this is that sometimes when you have a conflict with somebody that you need to be able to work with, sometimes you, it doesn't matter. I mean, it always, it, it like there is a point where it does matter what they did, but at some point you have to be able to just put that aside and, mm -hmm. and just 
say, you know what, for the better, for the, for the greater good, for, for the purposes of moving forward, I'm going to have to accept some level of, of ownership in this situation so that we can fix this and move on. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it was interesting because I'd heard about the controversy way before I saw the film that I actually watched the film. And I was like, that's what you assholes are pissed off about. Um, yeah. And and the problem is most of the controversy, I'm sorry, was coming from straight white cisgender male critics. Yeah. Uh, those were the only people I was seeing that were actually being quoted on it. I, if if there are other transgender people, et cetera, who, who had issues with it, I would love I would like to hear about that. Um, I think that it's it's handled actually very well in the film. And it's one of those, I agree with you, it, it, he's definitely being used as a stand-in for the transphobia that existed at that point and that still exists. And this whole, you know, particularly now in this day and age where we're hearing people constantly argue about, ah, trans people should not be allowed to play, you know, these sports because they have an unfair advantage or they have a disadvantage or whatever. Um, and... And so I, I I think that that's part of what's going on, but it doesn't vilify Thomas ultimately. Um, it says like he is having a reaction that he should not have and that he crosses a line that he should not cross and he's punished for it. Um, yep. And he's made to apologize for it. He has to apologize for it. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, so I always, my interpretation, my understanding of that scene was again, exactly as you said, she is coming to him to apologize for the physical action not for being angry. Um, and in fact, I think she says that explicitly. I'm sorry for slamming you to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> um, I should not have done that. It's like, okay, you should not have, have slammed someone to the ground. Yes. Okay. That's understandable. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that the deeper thing that is going on is that it's opening up that dialogue. And it, I don't think that the film is trying to say that, you know, the person who is wronged should be the one opening the dialogue. But that's often what happens. Mm -hmm. um, and you get the sense from what we know of, of Thomas and what Jaya knows of Thomas, he is not going to open the dialogue. That is not nope. something that will happen within the characterization that we've seen. Um, and, and this, again, I, I think it should be noted, this happens very early on in their relationship and in his relationship with the team. And he expresses concern, surprise, et cetera, at her presence throughout the, the early part of that, of the film. Yeah. Um, and, and it kind of, you're, you're kind of like, well, given everything, of course, it's going to come to this at some point, you know, you can't ignore um, the transphobia. That's something that's going to happen. Uh, right. And we sort of need to see that. So it is walking this very delicate line between we need to continue to like Thomas. We want to root for him. Um, we also need to, to, you know, not punish Jaya for being angry or for, you know, being trans, et cetera. And so there does need to have this dialogue open. And so I think it was actually handled in a very sensitive way um, that is difficult. And, you know, I, I'm certain you could argue that, well, it could have been written differently. We could have gone a different route with that relationship. But I, it's something that needed to be expressed openly and that needed to be talked about openly. And the way that it's handled is very sensitive. That's, yeah. that's my opinion. I totally agree with that. Um, so, and, and also I, I, Jaya is just, she's a wonderful character. She's so entertaining. I, I like, I like the part where, you know, it comes out that she stopped taking her hormones so that she can be better on the team. And I'm sitting there going like, oh, good, no, don't stop taking your hormones. No wonder you're having a breakdown. Like, right. oh my God, you poor woman. 
Um, and, but I like the fact that just like, okay, you have to, you have to lead them because I, I can't lead them. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. and it's, it's this wonderful thing and it, it brings, um, I think it brings another layer to, to the story in, and it's the real, it's part of the real story as well. Uh, it's not something, this is not a trans character who's just been kind of shoved into this narrative for points or anything like that. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I thought it was very, very well done. I agree. Um, so any other thoughts on, on next goal wins? It's I, just, it's just, I would really like to talk cool. about the ending and yeah. I'm sorry for anybody who hasn't watched this yet and you don't like, you don't, you think that real life spoiler or real life history is a spoiler. Um, <laughs> go ahead and forward, but <laughs> I want to talk about the ending because I yeah. love the way that the ending is constructed. <laughs> so, yes, um, I like this too. <laughs> Yeah, so you go into so they they're getting pummeled. They're playing Tonga. American Samoa is playing Tonga, and you know you've got uh, Reese Darby is back in town and Elizabeth Moss as Thomas's estranged wife and who is dating Will Arnett, which is by the way the character that Army Hammer was supposed to play uh, before oh, he okay. got recast. <laughs> yeah, they recast Will Will Arnett into that role. Um, but so, uh, I, I like, by the way, I like that half of the cast of Our Flag Beans Death is in this movie. Yes. <laughs> it's just like, that's Will Arnett. What's he doing here? Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes. And anyway, so they're in town to shut down the American Samoa program. Like, they're not going to be part of the International Soccer Federation anymore. And that's that's why they're here. And so it comes up to this game. They're playing Tonga. The first half is going terribly they go into the locker room for, for, you know, the halftime and uh, that goes badly and then it goes better. And basically the, the, just this message, the conversation that Thomas has with Tavita about, you know, like just this, we're, we're supposed to be here having a good time. You know, I'm having a good time. You're not happy. You should be happy. Like, this is a game you love. You should be happy. And just that conversation, that moment is so beautiful. So then Thomas goes back in and is like, you know what? Just play your game. Just just enjoy it. Like, what's going to change? They're, they came to shut down the program. If, if you don't win, like, nothing changes, you know? That's just going to happen. And so then what I love then is Tavita having having an episode of some kind he he collapses and i don't love that part but then he's off so then we end up getting the story of what happened in the second half of the game from his son who played in the game going and telling mom and dad about it <laughs> yeah. and it's inner and it's so funny because it's that that kind of he's trying to tell the story his dad keeps interrupting him with questions and commentary you know and reactions and then when it gets to the big final moment where American Samoa is about to, you know, they're on the cusp of losing or going into a tie because they're ahead. Um, because they finally accomplished their goal of scoring a goal. Um, and I love the way that then it's cut with glimpses of like the future and showing how people will eventually tell this story, yeah. including <laughs> <laughs> um Reese Darby with a group of people um Nikki Salapu who's the goalkeeper um you know and like reading this story about his great moment you know and I just I, I just think that's such a fun way to, to 
to do this because normally you know in in hoosiers in um any given sunday like all these movies that are kind of referenced throughout next goal wins and they're definitely um inspired um it's like those movies all give you the play-by-play of exactly what happened so you're there with the moment of the game-winning shot or whatever and in this case it's all being told to us by other people who are there experiencing it who are reliving Mm -hmm. that moment for many many years to come and i just i think that's such a great way to do it and it's funny but it's also just like really shows you how important this is that this is something they're going to hang on to for the rest of their lives Mm -hmm. well it it reinforces that whole idea this is a story this is a great story about a team you know it's a story of whoa (laughs) yeah Not like, whoa <laughs> sass like no like whoa that was awesome <laughs> um which is again the the framing narrative is taken himself playing yeah playing a priest um <laughs> i think there's probably something to, to to be said about the number of times he casts himself as a religious figure which i don't it's know it's true it's like a religious figure um <laughs> but but yeah it's it's that like this is a story this is you know this is a you know and and throughout there there is all this trying to frame the stories where thomas is just like you're gonna go fight Anga, who who in 1825 like he's trying <laughs> to find this way of, cra- of crafting this narrative that's a war and it's just like mm-hmm. stole your tuna <laughs> it's like they <laughs> they what they stole our tuna like it's it but it's it's all of those you know again like you said those inspirational sports movie tropes um that are kind of being punctured but then are like but no the, but we're actually going to make this exciting and this is what actually happened you know all of that it's so I, I agree with you it's so well done and i like the fact that it is framed as this story um and and the son being like let me tell you what happened oh my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love it and then you know to their credit when you have like once once the game ends and american samoa wins their very first game ever um you have will arnett and elizabeth moss like that whole group who was there to shut down the program they're also cheering like and it also reinforces this idea that everyone just loves soccer and everyone loves an underdog story and everybody's very excited for this moment because everybody understands what a big moment it is the only people who aren't excited are the tongan team who have just become the first team ever to lose to american samoa (laughs) (laughs) that's embarrassing right (laughs) but it but you really do see just that that enthusiasm and that exuberance from everybody around who really see what a big big moment this is yeah i i agree it's a it's a wonderful film i really encourage people to watch it uh yeah i mean everything that we said that you the the ending is kind of a spoiler but you you can look it up on Wikipedia yeah, and know what, what happened. happened. So <laughs> this is literally just what happened in the in reality. I just love this movie, and I'm so glad you did too. I you're smart and good, and I figured you would, but you never know. <laughs> <laughs> I I am again. I'm I'm shocked that people have panned it the way that that it has. Yeah. Been. Like, and I have seen a lot of people that I that I know who really love it, and I'm like, why why was anyone complaining about this? And again, I think some of it is is missing the point. To be completely honest. Um, that, you know, I've seen it compared to like, you know, oh, this is just like cool runnings or these are like, oh, it's just an inspirational sports movie. It's just like, I think you missed some of it. Like, I think you actually missed some of what was going on there. Cause Mm -hmm. you know, I, I hate, I hate to use the word subtlety, uh, in reference to this (laughs) film, but if you're missing that, then you're missing some of the subtlety of it. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. 
Um, and I just, I think that, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think some of it comes down to people are just, they, they decided they just don't want to like him, but, uh, but I think overall, you know, some of the, what we were talking about in the beginning really does come into play because this movie, you know, I mean, he had done, he had done four films. He'd done Eagle versus shark boy hunt for wilder people. And, um, what we do in the shadows and then he does and plus some short films in there too and tv but then he does thor ragnarok becomes a huge household name for a lot of people that was their first introduction to taiko was thor ragnarok and then he does another thor movie and he does jojo rabbit gets nominated for six oscars for that movie and now he comes back and does next goal wins which is the first time that he's gone back to um you know, the South Pacific since Hunt for the Wilder People in 2016. So it's been eight years since he's been in that part of the world. And this feels like a movie made by the director who made that movie. You know, it does it mm-hmm. and Thor, you know, it, Thor and and Jojo, those definitely have Taika trademarks to them, but Next Goal Wins very much feels like it's part of that early filmography in ways that that his big studio films definitely do not yeah yeah definitely i agree with you um so yeah all of these films are available to stream if you have not seen them watch them if you have seen them haven't seen them in a while watch them again because honestly like re-watching them for me was just like this is wonderful i'm so glad <laughs> and i'm i was so happy to rewatch Hunt for the wilder people because i'd forgotten a lot of it and and how how lovely it is and um yeah it's it's really really well worth it and actually you know turn off some of the critiques that you might have in your brain and actually pay attention to the films yeah um because so, they're and- so hopeful and so optimistic and, well, I- and just loving i i said this under a different context uh, a couple days ago that um i was trying to figure out filmmakers to compare him to in terms of just his outlook on humanity right and art etc and the ones that i kept on coming back to were people like ernst lubitsch and frank capra where there there is it's not it's funny and it's uplifting and kind and gentle but there is this this reality underlying it's not naive um it's hopeful without being like everything is going to be okay yeah. Right. It's it's it is so much of his work is about survival and it's about surviving through horrible things sometimes, um, both at an individual level and at a you know a more global level. And and films like you know Thor Ragnarok or um Jojo Rabbit definitely deal with those bigger issues, but it, it looks at the reality of of people surviving and the joy of that, the fact that we have to be able to laugh and we have to continue to laugh because if we can't then something is truly wrong. Then, then we've lost something in ourselves. Um, and I, yeah, I just find his films so wonderful and moving and there's a depth to them, all of them, all of the ones that I've seen uh, that is missing in a lot of work uh, by other filmmakers and that is missing in a lot of mainstream filmmaking. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think... I think that's something that we really need to remember. And so again, go watch these films and actually think about them beyond whatever your attitude might be towards their director. Absolutely. Um, So I think that that is going to close us out for this week. That was fun. I'm glad we got to talk about all of this. Me too. Um, And as always, we want to thank our lovely and wonderful patrons who continue to support our show. 
they are Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Judy, Karen, Cariata, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, and Tao. Thank you so much for continuing to support us, guys. Uh, we'll hopefully have some bonus episodes coming up and uh, give you a little bit more bang for your buck, as it were. <laughs> um, if you would like to join their number, our Patreon is patreon.com slash citizen dame. And it is a good way to support us uh, if you if you like our commentary, want us to keep on talking about stuff, and it helps us to keep the lights on, etc. Um, we also have an Etsy store now. That's etsy.com slash shop slash citizen dame pod. Um, and you can check out like our various little designs, hopefully have some more things up there as well. Uh, and we also have a Ko-Fi, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. And if you also want to give us a rating or something like that on our Spotify, Apple podcast, wherever you happen to be listening to us. And if you like us, give us a nice rating. That's always nice. Uh, it makes us feel good. And it kind of raises our profile a little bit. Um, and let's see what else. We, of course, have our website. Our website is citizendaypod.com. We've got all of Karen's Sundance reviews. I've got some editorials up there. Uh, and hopefully we'll have more things coming before long as well. Uh, I'm definitely shifting more away from criticism and more towards analysis, I guess, would be the way that I would, I would frame it. Uh, because I just think that that's more fun, ultimately, for me. Yeah. Uh, you can also get in touch with us via email. We are citizendamepod at gmail.com. And, and again, if there's anything that we've said that you disagree with, that you want to chat, chat to us about, ask us about, uh, et cetera, we would always love to hear from you, um, as long as you're polite. <laughs> and we are on all of the various socials. We are on Twitter and Instagram uh, and Blue Sky at Citizen Dame Pod. And you can find us on our letterbox HQ at Citizen Dame, where you can get links to all of our episodes, articles, as well as wonderful lists about the films that we're talking about and some other things as well. And so we are on letterbox at Citizen Dame. And of course, you can get in touch with us individually. Karen, where are you? I am on all the socials, particularly Instagram and letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. And I am on all the socials at LH Business. Uh, and I think that'll close us out for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. I'll never stop running. Yeah, and I'll never stop chasing you. I'm relentless. I'm like the Terminator. I'm more like Terminator than you. I said at first you're more like Sarah Connor. No, I'm not. Yes, in, in the first movie too, before she could do chin-ups. <laughs>